80s when I went to uh, Auburn's vet school, War Eagle, again, uh, I'd say Auburn at the time was fairly steeped in a kind of Southern tradition, uh, the vet school, Southern tradition in, in this professional culture that they wanted to instill upon their students. And, and part of how that was manifested or reflected was that we had a dress code, all right? So the men had to wear ties and slacks and button-down shirt, and the ladies had to wear a skirt or pants or, or something like that. And, but the, this even extended into anatomy, okay? Into anatomy, not just class, lecture, but into anatomy lab, all right? Anatomy lab. So anatomy lab was kind of in this building, um, in the backside of this building, huge, huge room. And, um, you know, there was this big refrigerator, right? And um, so we would, there were four students per, per, per cadaver dog, okay? And we would go in the refrigerator, wheel this thing out, and, uh, and start working on our, you know, anatomy dogs. And we used them for a whole semester. And, um, but I got, um, oh, oh, yeah, one other thing about that. And I don't know for the other folks in here, the other doctors maybe, but I don't know what it was, but the male dogs... They, they stunk 10 times as much as the female dogs. So that kind of translates to life, I think, somehow. But. So here we are. We're, we're in our, our suit, or not our suit, but we had our tie on and a button down. And I got really sick and tired of my tie dragging through this pet. And, uh, you know, tuck it in and, you know, you're moving around and it fall out. So one day I finally told Fran, I was like, I'm going to the mall and I'm going to get a bow tie. And I bought about three or four bow ties, and from there on out, I will, through vet school, most of the time, I wore a lot of bow ties, and um, you'll see me occasionally with a bow tie still around, and that's why. Is that one of the originals? This is not one of the originals. <laughs> well, anyway, smell it. <laughs> nope. So, um, and it really came in handy, yeah, formaldehyde and formalin. It really came in handy when I was, you know, working on horses and cows that was, you know, you get kind of deeper in. Um, now, in anatomy, anatomy for the veterinary student is the foundation upon which everything else builds upon, right? I mean, they just pounded that into you for a full year, and, um, and everything's built on that. Physiology, pathology, you know, disease process, all of it goes back to anatomy. And I want to make this, this spiritual leap, okay, if you'll, if you'll bear with me, that um, you can't be a strong believer without a strong and healthy prayer life, okay? Prayer life is important to us. It is the oxygen to our souls, all right? It is the meat and potatoes. It's the main course. It's not some side dish or soup or salad. I mean, it's the main dish when we're talking about our spiritual life. Just as anatomy was an absolute essential to our um, becoming a veterinarian, prayer is a vital, vital component to our spiritual well-being. So if you've got your Bibles, let's open to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to talk about prayer. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. So we've got five verses here. Let me read it to you. It says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. 
Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, let me just set it up real quick. Again, I said we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and the first six verses of Matthew chapter 7 is about judging others. So we have this natural tendency to look at the speck in your brother's eye while there's a log in your own eye, right? We like to think of ourselves a little bit better than, um, or a little more higher than everybody else. So coming on the heels of that, Jesus says to ask, to seek, and to knock. You know, if you ever wondered, gosh, why am I not living out the Sermon on the Mount? It might be because we're not asking, we're not seeking, we're not knocking. Why don't I ever feel very close to God? Well, part of the reason is we're just not praying. So let's tackle a couple, of, a couple of objections real quick. So why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? Um, raise your hand. Who's on Facebook? Okay, so pretty much the entire room, right? All right. So haven't you seen how everybody is just so happy and their lives are just awesome and good, right? I mean, everything's going great. I mean, somebody right now is posting a picture of themselves on the boat at the lake. How does that make you feel? Uh, Pretty good, right? Or jealous or angry. So, you know, you've heard the other name of Facebook, right? Fake book, right? So here we are in our age that we live in with all this social media and stuff, and we see everybody else is just so happy. And it's true. You know, God causes the rain, right? to rain upon the Gentiles' farm as well as the believers' land, right? So God does give, um, give blessings to all, but spiritual blessings far, far outweigh material blessings, right? And God can and will shower you with spiritual blessings when you ask him. Okay, here's another reason why we don't pray. So we feel that prayer is unproductive, Right? I've asked God for such and such, and he said no, and I'm mad. I'm not going to go back to him, not for a while, right? You've, you've done that, right? You've prayed these things before. You think that God is some sort of blank check, ready to be written at your beck and whim. He's this, you know, genie in the bottle. Just rub that genie, or rub that little bottle, and the genie pops out, and that's God, and God is not that. He's not summoned when you want something. James 4, 2 through 3 says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, listen, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So why do you not have? Because one, you don't ask, and two, you're doing it, you're asking selfishly. Now, honestly, in hindsight, wouldn't you say that it's a, um, you're grateful to God for not answering every prayer? Now, he gives answers, right? He answers our prayer. Sometimes it's just a flat-out no, um, but that he's not granted everything to you that you've asked for. Um, qu- quick story, when I, when I graduated, I came back here to um, Kyreville, 
and I was working at another practice, and I was praying. I was like, I want to be, I want to own this place. I want to be a partner, and a couple of years into it, I did. I became a partner, and I was like, yes, and I'm like, okay, this is how it's going to go. You know, in my 40s, I'm going to do this, in my 50s, and I'll sell it, and you know, about three or four years into it, I said, well, maybe this isn't the right plan, and after a few years, you know, I saw it wasn't, and thankfully, our God is very much wiser than we are, and he's very much more loving than we are. All right, and third and final reason we're not praying enough is that prayer, and I hate to use this word, but it reeks of dependence. It reeks of dependence, and it reeks of a lack of control that we feel like we have. The need to pray reveals that we are inadequate, right? That we have shortcomings in, our, in ourselves, If I'm praying to God for something, I am powerless is basically what I'm saying. And we don't like that. Christians don't even like that. Prayer makes you feel humbled. And we don't want to depend on anybody and especially God. We want to, it's like we want to take God and we want to kind of box him up, put him in this little box, and we want to put him over here in the corner of our lives. And we want to say, you know what, God, I can handle 99% of my life. But when things get really bad, okay, I'm going to unravel and unbox you and I'll let you out for that 1%. And that's just not the way that God works. As Christians, we're called to embrace our dependence on God and not to embrace some sort of independence from him. All right, so we kind of tackled excuses for not praying. Let's actually look at some of the verses here. The first, we're going to break it down into to two sections. So the first two verses, here we go, uh, verse 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Three things about this. Three things about these couple of verses. First off, these verses are not some encouragement to pray. They're not an encouragement to pray. They are commands to pray. You see it? They're commands to pray. He's demanding us to pray. He says, ask. He says, seek. He said, knock. That's what we're supposed to do. Did, um, did anybody, raise your hand if you saw that movie, Risen, the one that came out around Easter? Nobody's raising real high. <laughs> All right, well, I saw it. I kind of liked it. Risen was the story about this Roman soldier, um, kind of general guy that was over Jerusalem. It was just, it was a neat perspective. I have to, I thought it was kind of a neat perspective on the, um, the death of Christ. Um, but I bring that up to say, in just about every movie that you go and see, you know, where there's a movie about Jesus, right? Jesus pictures this kind of like harmless fella, right? This kind of uh, nice guy, he smiles, I mean, he laughs, that was good to see, you know, when Jesus was laughing. Um, you know, just this kind of nice guy. And I think there are times, and obviously you see it in Scripture, where Jesus gets up in our face and he says, this is the way it's going to be. And I think this is, this is one of those examples in this, in this uh, section on the Sermon on the Mount. He's not inviting us, he's like, he's not inviting us, so, so if you want to, just ask. If you, if you feel like it, just seek. No, he is saying, ask, seek, knock. These are commands. And he says it three times. So he's like, wake up, this is important, you need to do this. If you wonder why you're not spiritually growing, then you need to start asking and seeking and knocking. 
Second part of, these, of this little section on verses. Have your kids, um, <laughs> I think it already happened this morning. Have your kids ever come up to you and, and asked for something? And it's attached with some, well, if I do this, then you will do that. So I know this week we had several, um, so it was a little bit of a study week. It was, you know, the end of school and a couple of them had, you know, exams and stuff. If I study two hours, just two hours, will you take me to Miko's, please? Please? You're like, eh, you know, and they just kind of wear on you and you're like, fine, you know? So the two hours roll around, you know, you've kind of forgotten about it and you're like, okay, maybe they've forgotten about it, Right? So, Dad, you promised to take me to Miko's if I study. You're like, you had your phone for 30 minutes, you know. But anyways. <laughs> so, our Father in Heaven, though, He doesn't break promises like I do. Our Father in Heaven always fulfills His promises. And that's what part of this, these verses um, tell us about. Look at the promises. Even before he's asked, Jesus says, ask what's going to happen. You're going to be given. You're going to receive. He said, if you seek, you're going to find. He says, if you knock, it's going to be opened for you. I've always loved this verse in James. James has got a lot of verses, real good verses on prayer. Um, James 5, 16 says this, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Now, I'm not claiming to be a righteous man, but I tell you what, that verse motivates the heck out of me. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. 1 John 3.22 says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So God promises not only to, um, to hear our requests, I mean, he bends his ear to hear us, but he promises to answer. He promises to answer them. Third and final point on these two verses is persistence. Persistence pays off, right? He says, ask, he says, seek, he says, knock. So it's a command, but he's saying it three times, right? Anytime in the Bible, it says three times. I mean, hey, wake up, this is important. Persistence pays off. Now, um, raise your hand if you've got, how many folks have dogs? Yes, all right, that's good. Okay, <laughs> all right, so... Um, all right, so I always tell my, my new pet owners, you know, especially people that have never had a dog before, and they're just clueless. But I'll say, look, you've got this puppy. Just don't start feeding your dog from the table. It's just easier, right? Life's easier. If you just don't start, it, you know, you won't have to stop. Because stopping isn't ever going to happen. But you know how it goes, right? You know how it goes if, you, if you've got this dog, and they're just, you know, they're, you're sitting there eating dinner, and there's perched at you, and they're, kind of blinking, and they kind of, then they do the cock of the head, right? And then they, you know, that little, and you're like, oh, you know, you can't turn that down, right? It's hard to resist those eyes that are staring at you. So finally, after their persistence, they, you give in, right? You're like, okay, here, here's a little bit, and, you know, here's a little more. So um, the fact is that God wants to be pursued in that manner. God wants to be pursued by us in that manner. He wants to be needed. He wants to be relied upon. 
And you think, oh, well, wait, doesn't that sound very bad? This is God we're talking about. He is worthy of our pursuit. He is worthy of our need, needing him. He's worthy of our being relied, or relying upon him. Uh, there's, a, um, there's a story in Luke 18, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read a snippet. But the story about the widow who is persistent to the judge. He, she continually came before the judge and because uh, she wanted to get this legal protection. He is just basically threw his hands up. He's like, this lady is bothering me. I will do it. And then Jesus says this in that verse or in that section. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Be persistent with your prayers. Be persistent with your prayers. First Thessalonians 5, 17 Pray without ceasing. One of the shortest verses in the Bible, right? Pray without ceasing. You ought to go on day after day, not occasionally, not some isolated request. Oh, this is really important. I'm going to come to you once for this. But a burning pursuit of your heavenly Father. So in these first two verses, we see that we're commanded to pray. We see that um, God has made promises to us. And third, that we are supposed to persist in prayer. All right, let's turn to the last three verses. I'm going to read them real quick. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? All right, there are two key things that we're going to touch on. The first is to realize to whom we're praying. And the other part of this is to realize who we are, okay? Who the prayer is, the prayer is. All right, to whom do we pray? We pray to our Father. J.I. Packer says this in the old classic um, Knowing God book. If you want to judge how, listen, this is rich. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. We have a heavenly father that loves us. And if we're not understanding that, we're missing out on a huge chunk, a huge blessing of being a Christian. Galatians 4, 7 says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, and an heir through God. So first, let's realize this. So he's a father, we're his son. Did he have to do this? Did he have to adopt us? I mean, why did he do that? Jesus could have used the analogy, in the, and God could have used this analogy throughout Scripture. He could have had the, just kept it as the teacher and the student relationship, right? He could have had the master-slave relationship analogy. Or he could have had the king and the subjects, right? And, you know, honestly, we'd be fine if we were still servants of the Most High King. I mean, that's not a bad gig. I'll take that job, Right? There are beings around in this world, right, that's in Scripture that are servants of God. What are they? Starts with an A. 
Angels, right? But guess what angels are? Angels are not sons and daughters of the living God. They are not. We are. He was under no obligation to adopt us, but he chose to. Um, do we have any... <laughs> I'm embarrassed, really. Do you have any Downton Abbey fans? Nobody... The guys, don't raise your hand. I understand. So I was dragged into it reluctantly, and um, I'll, I kind of liked it, okay? So just a quick picture. If you don't know Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey, this huge home, this palatial, you know, palace, and the family is the, the, um, the Crawleys, and he's, his name's Lord Grantham, right? Lord Grantham, and, you know, he's inherited all this wealth, and he's like the head of the family. So Lord Grantham, and he has, the, he has you know, a horde of servants, but the chief servant is Mr. Carson, right? This regal, very, you know, great guy, um, Mr. Carson. So picture this again, you're, we're in the Downton Abbey in the home and, you know, we're in the parlor and we have Robert, we have Lord Grantham. He's maybe he's working at his desk and Mr. Carson's just standing at attention. He's standing at attention, just waiting for any beck and call of Lord Grantham. And then all of a sudden in the scene burst through the door, the grandkids come running in and they jump on, uh, Lord Grantham's lap they play with him. He may get on the floor and roll with them. Guys, that's the difference between a servant and a son. That's the difference between being a servant and a daughter. You have that relationship. Our relationship with God is no longer as an enemy king, but a loving heavenly father. As sons and daughters, only we enjoy this privilege, okay? Only we enjoy this privilege. God does not hear the prayers that are from non-believers. Do you believe that? God's ear is not bent to the unbeliever, but he has bent his ear and he listens to us. Romans 8, 14 and 15 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of adoption, and it enables this closeness, this proximity that we have. Another thing you see in this verse, we get to cry out to him. We get to speak to God with emotion, with passion, with fervor, we can speak openly and, on, and honestly with our heavenly Father. He says, cry out to me. The third part we see here is the access. You know, God didn't, he, he says to call him. He says, call me Abba, call me Father. You know, he didn't suggest it. It wasn't just an off-the-cuff idea like, hmm, let me think about this. How do I want to be known as? He says, Abba, Father, and it's the, that word, he says it twice again. It's, it's just, it's this papa, daddy, father, right? We have this immediate access to the father. God is easily accessible to us because of that relationship. And finally, we can come boldly and confidently before the throne. In Ephesians 3.12, it says, In Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and access with confidence through our faith in him. You know, we're no longer at war with God, right? The terror of the curse is eliminated. We have an advocate before the throne, Jesus Christ himself. So we can come to the throne confident 
and bold and express ourselves to him. Third and final point on this, on this section of scripture, and that is realize that God is the giver of good gifts. God has gone from being, again, in our relationship, in our, as a Christian, from a Christian to a, to a, or a non-believer to a Christian, he's gone from, from being a God of wrath to a God of great and wonderful gifts. You know, if I asked you to describe, how would you describe God? You might come up with, well, okay, he's, uh, he's loving, he's gracious, he's omnipotent. And it might take you a while to down the list of answers, and you, would you come up with that God is a giver? God is a giver. God is a God of generosity. I mean, he calls us to be generous, right? But we're doing that because we're reflecting who he is. Listen to this in Ephesians uh, chapter one. It says, in him, talking about Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. He lavished on us. Now, synonyms for lavish. He was extravagant towards us. He was excessive with us. He was unrestrained. He was over the top. He lavished his riches on us. This is our God. In James, it says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. So don't ever forget that God is a giver of good gifts. So God did not have to adopt us. We have this intimacy and access, and God is a giver of good gifts. The other part of the coin, again, is looking at who we are as we kind of wind down here. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, let's look at our side, who the prayer is. Total depravity, that whole topic, total depravity was not created by Calvin or Paul or Luther. It was created by God and Jesus Christ. Look what he says. If you being evil. So he's giving this talk. He's speaking to them. And notice what he doesn't say. He says, not if we being evil, Jesus says, oh, no, no, you and humanity, the rest of humanity are evil. But I, on the other hand, am not. He's excluding himself, right? He's not including himself at all in this conversation. If you being evil. And notice also what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you do evil, such and such. Oh, we do evil for sure. But he says, you are evil, you being evil. We're full of sin. If you, if you wonder where we start in our status of life when we're born, there, let there be no doubt in your mind when you read this verse. If you being evil, this is Jesus Christ, full of sin, we're born into sin from the get-go. Now, if anybody, you know, th- these, are not un- these are not flattering terms that Jesus Christ uses, right? Um, when... <laughs> I mean, maybe you've had this happen. I don't know. Anybody ever said something really bad to you? Okay, maybe mean or unflattering, critiqued you in some way that you didn't like. I was in fourth grade. So I don't know, what is that, 10 or 11? I was in fourth grade and I don't know, you know, this part I, I, I have shunned from my memory. But the teacher called me up and I had done something, I guess pretty awful. And she literally, she got in my face and she said, you will never make it through high school the way you are now. 
She said, you are not going to be, she said, you are not going to be anything. Now, again, I went home, you know, we had the whole parent conversation. So, you know, I was sad for a few days. But then my spirit is one where I was like, I am mad and I'm going to prove you wrong. (laughs) That's just me. Sorry. Um, So Jesus here, he says, you being evil, he is critiquing us pretty offensively, right? It wouldn't go over real well with the um, politically correct crowd, right? This topic, that verse, you know, he couldn't speak on college campuses. There wouldn't be a place for him. Many Christians even take offense to that truth that we are evil, born in sin. Second part and the last part on this is that let's look at the comparison he makes with the earthly fathers to the heavenly father. Let me ask you, and you don't have to answer out loud, is or was your heavenly, is or was your earthly father a blessing to you? Let me say this, don't limit your understanding of God as your father by the experience you had with your earthly father. There's no comparison. Not even if he was a great man, is there any comparison. Again, if you being evil gave good gifts, then what do you think God's response is going to be? God has no limit to his treasure. There are no boundaries to his goodness. The greatest human love a parent can shed or can, can, can give to a child pales, pales in comparison to the love that, that um, Jesus and God give to us. So as we conclude, let me wrap up with this a couple of final thoughts. Um, often in Scripture, heaven is equated to a wedding feast or a banquet or something of that matter, right? And um, I, actually, I actually like going to weddings, <laughs> all right? But my motives are not pure, all right? I enjoy going to weddings pretty much. I mean, Fran can attest to this. And I love to go for the food, <laughs> all right? And it, it honestly, it embarrasses her sometimes. You know, I'm walking by with a plate of, you know, just piled up. And uh, especially, especially if I see someone walking by with shrimp, I'm like, hey, where did you find that? And uh, if there is a wedding with shrimp, you normally can find me huddled around the shrimp bowl. So picture in your mind right now, picture in your mind a, a, a banquet hall, a huge, huge banquet hall. There's music, there's celebration, and there's this huge table of, of bountiful foods and desserts and meats and just, and everything. Just picture that in your mind, okay? But where are we in this picture? Most Christians are sitting, maybe kind of huddled up in the corner, just eating on and and nibbling on some of the crumbs from the table. We're just, we're satisfied with some of the crumbs. We're satisfied with just some morsels from the table. And why is that? Why are we over there just satisfied with this little bit? And it's because we're not asking. It's because we're not seeking. It's because we're not knocking. That's the reason. Three words in this passage that I've intentionally not mentioned yet. In verse 11, or actually in verse 12. How much more will your Father who is in heaven 
Give what is good to those who ask him. God is a God all about the how much more. How much more is the main theme of the Bible. Brothers and sisters in Christ here tonight, today, how much more have you forfeited the blessings and the treasures of God's banquet table because you're not asking, because you're not seeking, and because you're not knocking? It's time to pray to the God of how much more. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, Father God, and we confess our sin that we and I, we don't pray enough, Lord. We don't rely upon you enough, Lord. We don't trust you enough with all these things in our lives, Lord. Father God, we want to handle most of it, Father God, where we, want, where we need to want to give it all to you. Father God, we give you such little prayers for such a big and giant and loving God. Our prayers are so small compared to you, Lord. Help us to realize that. Help us to realize that we are sons and daughters and that we can come before you each and every day and help us to persist in our prayers, Father God. I pray, O oh Lord God, that you would answer these prayers this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you.